have developed speed, but we have shut ourselves in. Machinery that gives abundance has left us in want. We think too much and feel too little. More than machinery, we need humanity. We know the air is unfit to breathe and our food is unfit to eat, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. Silence! Our great and powerful Oz knows why you have come. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. You have meddled with the primal forces of nature. Don't give yourselves to brutes. Men who despise you, enslave you, who regiment your lives, tell you what to do, what to think, or what to feel, who drill you, diet you, treat you like cattle, use you as cannon fodder. Don't give yourselves to these unnatural men, machine men with machine minds and machine hearts. <laughs> Jason Burmes. And who loves you? And who do you love? Good morning, everybody. I am Jason Burmes. This is Reality Rants with Red Voice Media. And I truly do love all of you out there. Today, we are going to look to a better day, a better tomorrow, a brighter future, a more positive outlook, because that's the spin that we're getting via the Davos crowd. We played uh, Klaus Nutschwab's uh, basic, basically his latest hello, hello Davos. And I love, I love how everybody starts out with your majesty's esteemed, they should call them dictators or puppets, right? But esteemed emissaries, all these people, but we're gonna have the will of humanity, a bright future, a positive outlook as we transition. And there's not a ton out there from uh, the new Davos, but you can tell that they're they're doing like their their post COVID thing. They got you know people singing about the Earth. Don't worry, we might get into the uh, Imperative 21, which is an offshoot of all of this. The her. Now, you know, they got another another person singing about how hard horrible humans are for the earth. <laughs> That's how we're going to kick it off. So you can find that. And already I can tell you it is heavy on the democracy and fight for Ukraine. Democracy and fight for, you, for Ukraine. So much so that uh, the, there's two so far on C-SPAN that I've seen. And it's getting really frustrating. Because I feel like, you know, five years ago, even three, four years ago, there was so much access to all of these things, right? It's almost a joke that somehow the press is going to be able to cover Davos better than somebody who can just watch the entire presentation, start to finish, one seminar after another. 
right? One forum after another, and then give their take on it. Really, the only other thing you can have with the press there is very rarely the ability to ask a question on the scene, but then you're just completely and totally pampered, right? You're eating these wonderful meals. You're staying in this wonderful hotel. Just so happens there, there's a lot of prostitutes around. Gee, I wonder if any of the press partake in that. Maybe there's a gift here from a, a lobbyist or a dignitary or emissary of democracy. Sounds like a conspiracy theory to me, Jason. So uh, basically, the, the forum that they want you to see is not only the European le leaders on defending Europe at the World Economic Forum, so all Russia bad, Putin bad, unprovoked. And then Ukrainian First Lady uh, Olena Zelenska addresses the World Economic Forum. And there, there's a horrible story about a helicopter crash and possible sabotage. We're in a war right now. We, me and you. Now, globally, um, fifth generation warfare has taken place. And this is not a nation state thing. This is a global architecture of which the World Economic Forum is integral because it is the outward mouthpiece for this. And it is the in your face, not only coordination of the plan, but the celebration of it as well. The ultimate and the gaslighting that somehow all these people are legitimate. Their ideas are legitimate. And like we played you yesterday. They're here to save the world. They're a select group of human beings um, that are almost like extraterrestrials, according to John Skull and Bones Carey. Again, somebody who absolutely 100% runs way more, way more of what's going on in the country and the world than our poopy pants puppet. And that kind of segues me on where I want to start today, and that is the gaslighting that somehow Joe Biden is running anything, anything at all. I'm, I'm dead serious. Is he running? Nothing. From the inception of, of this guy's administration, he's not even really good at making it look like he runs something. Okay. Let's, let's be 100% honest with ourselves. Let's look in the mirror. And yet, we all have to believe, according to the authoritative sources and the powers that be and the intel community that's been so honest with us and done so many good things over the years, that Joe Biden is the 81 million vote a man. Got to believe it. If you don't believe it, somehow, you know, you have a mental illness. You have to believe that the Trump derangement syndrome was so heavy that it overcame stadiums and military bases full of people that couldn't wait to, to hear that man speak, had to overcome the vast amount of red hats and MAGA gear and bumper stickers 
all across the country. And I mean, joke shirts, memes. You had to believe it. You had to believe despite the fact that Joe Biden couldn't speak. Okay. Was already clearly having uh, signs of dementia. Clearly. That that was the guy. Just like you had to believe that it was okay to get rid of Andrew Cuomo for some grab ass scandal. But nothing really happened in the nursing homes. You just got to believe all these lies. And now it does seem like they're getting rid of Joe Biden. They, they've got their out. They've got their Watergate style, limited hangout, nothing burger, classified documents, bullshiz to get him out. To move him out in an orderly fashion so they can reorganize and figure out how uh, they're going to maneuver the chessboard with their puppets. Okay. But in a stark and vast reminder that Joe Biden does not know where he is most of the time and has no idea what's going on, here he is forgetting uh, Coretta Scott King's name as he can't wait to sing happy birthday. See, he's at that phase, that old uncle or grandpa phase. Like if, if anybody's seen this come from a big family, someone in your family as they, they age, they, they keep, they have a go-to, right? They have a go-to and Joe loves happy birthday. Joe can remember happy birthday. He can sing you happy birthday. And when you, when you see this, it's hard to watch. It's sad. I'm not happy this is going on, but it shows you again that this guy wouldn't be fit to really hold a day job. Not that he's ever held a day job outside of politics and being, you know, crooked. He hasn't. All right. He, he's been an envoy of corruption really for decades. It's remarkable. And this is his last gig as the president of the United States where he likes to sing happy birthday, but then he can't remember who he's singing it to or why he's even there. That's the utter reality of where we are in a post-truth world. You've been a good friend for a long time. It's an honor to spend King Holiday with the uh, National Action Network and with the King family, Martin and family. And I uh, understand, uh, you know, uh, Martin III, we celebrate a legacy of your beloved father and mother. They work for the beloved community. But congratulations today, the honorees, uh, including your wife. Uh, who I understand, uh, is birthday today? Well, look, my wife has a rule in her family. When somebody's birthday, sing happy birthday. You ready? Happy birthday to you. Look how excited he is. He's like, it's my big moment. I'm singing happy birthday. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Alvin. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> He's like, I got the end right. Yeah, man, yeah, I forgot the name, but that's all right. Everybody, everybody forgives Uncle Joe. Everybody, I'm the president. Uh, yeah. He beat Big Pharma, right? He beat Big Pharma. This is the guy. He beat Big Pharma. The, I mean, it's incredible.
what this man is allowed to say and do. And, and especially, you know, you, you look at Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And we talked about this uh, after we played the Silence's Betrayal speech. And by the way, um, it was really great to see Tucker Carlson have a uh, relative of Martin Luther King uh, Jr. come on. And I know that the big hubbub has been about the statue. And personally, I, I don't love the statue, but I'm not going to go as far as other people. I understand why some people don't like it and are outraged. And, you know, it's kind of like, in a lot of cases, you know, pseudo modern art garbage. From certain angles, you know, you get it. It's, you know, an embrace. And I, I've seen the photograph. I'm not here to talk about that. But he got on there and he said the truth. The U.S. government. Uh, I, I believe it was his grandfather. I think he's a grandson of uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, killed him. And they killed him. And, and, and he was so spot on, man. This guy was awesome. I mean, in fact, I should play that clip. Uh, maybe if I can find it live, I'll, I'll bring it in. But he said, you know, they were fine when he was talking about just the race issues. But when he crossed the barrier to poor people, white and black, and speaking out against Vietnam, he goes, that was it. That's when they decided he had to go. That's when they killed him. Correctamundo. Correctamundo. Because the last thing they want is somebody with that kind of pull, all right, and um, that kind of ability to organize and get people to do the most powerful of la resistance, okay? And that is civil disobedience. And, and that's why, you know, when January 6th happened, what I would have liked to see if there was a concerted effort to have a sit-in um, on the outside of the Capitol, not break in, not break anything, but just say, we're not leaving until we get our redress of grievances and some kind of an audit or somebody to look at this evidence, that would have been an ultimately positive thing. But that was not allowed to emerge. And really, a lot of those aspects were derailed by provocateurs, assets, etc. They They wanted their insurrection. You can watch uh, interviews I did with Whitney Webb. And by the way, we're going to read Whitney Webb's unlimited hangout piece on uh, Wuhan lab lab uh, on really uh, start to finish. Uh, so, I mean, you look at this stuff and it's right there. It's right there. She breaks down so many things on this agenda that she's the top. Um, I, I mean, I don't think it gets better than Whitney Webb in most cases, uh, period, period. Uh, she, she, she's what most people should aspire to be when it gets to investigative journalism. Johnny Vedmore, he's another one, um, you know, both unlimited hangout, obviously. Derek Bros going deep all the time. He's another one. You know, without those people, we wouldn't really know uh, what's going on in the bowels. All right. What, what's really, 
you know, the, the darkness out there. So I, I want to commend all those independent researchers out there that, that are uh, doing good things. And uh, without those guys, those independent people, I, I wouldn't be able to do what I do. Right. Because I because I need people to break through further than what I'm able to break through. on. What do I mean by that? Whitney Webb. I mean, people know her Epstein work and she's done a lot more work on top of that. You know, you know what I'm saying? I mean, she's done a ton of it. And when we look at the World Economic Forum, you know, Vedmore has done amazing things out of Klaus Schwab showing you showing you really how he's just a mouthpiece. It's not like he just like rose to power. It's like, no, you know, the intelligence agencies, uh, along with the Kissinger Institute and people like Galbraith and Herman Kahn get in there. And, that, and you know, we got to live in this gaslit world where Joe Biden runs the country. He's the most popular dude ever. We have free and fair elections. Russia's the ultimate enemy, right? All that stuff. No, <laughs> no, I live in the real world. But to illustrate kind of the gaslighting, I did have a few stories here. All right. Outrage as top intelligence chief now admits significant parts of Hunter Biden's laptop had to be real. No kidding. Despite signing letter with 50 others dismissing it as Russian information. I mean, and again, Russian disinformation, you know, all that stuff. It's right there. It, it, you knew it was bull snap. Of course, everybody knew that the videos were true, that were leaking everywhere. It, 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 they throw it in your face. And this is the intel community that we're supposed to trust. You know, the same one, again, that murdered Dr. King. That murdered him. And, and Tucker Carlson said, hey, well, I, I don't know who, who murdered Dr. King. Getting back to that. But then you look at the House Assassination Committee, right? And Gates says, basically, this is going to be like a church committee. And they said that MLK, JFK, and RFK, what? Were the product of conspiracies. So who else do you think took out JFK and RFK and MLK when you look at the evidence? I mean, you know, the government is a broad thing. And there are proxy networks within proxy networks and the deep state is real. But the bottom line is they don't want us coming together, okay? And saying it doesn't matter what religion you are, doesn't matter what political per persuasion you are. These people at the top are doing very, very bad things. Bad things. And they're lying to our face. This A guy like this, all right, like, like can't wait to lie to your face. Douglas Wise, a former Defense Intelligence Agency deputy director, told the Australian he did not regret signing on the October 2020 letter of 51 former intelligence officials doubting the authenticity of the laptop. I mean, I knew that a lot of it was real. I mean, all of us figured that a significant portion of the content had to be real, you know, just to make any Russian disinformation credible. See how that works? See how that gaslighting works? Like, well, you know, 
we, we you know, it, Russia could have slipped something in there and we would have never known. So all those emails, we had to discredit them. <laughs> that whole pedo Peter thing didn't want to report on it. I mean, come on, man. So, you know, again, they're laughing in your face, laughing, laughing, laughing. Um, yes, I mean, happy birthday to who? Just totally done. Another clip. He's calling Kamala embarrass Cam Allah. And, and it is ridiculous because every other minute Kamala's name changes, right? Every other minute. And that that's not an exaggeration. Just changes to whatever they want, period. I, I mean, do we have the video of that too? Yeah, yeah, why not? Why not? Why not, right, Joe? Kamala, thank you very much. Uh, <clears throat> feels like a war or home game. And uh, there's the toughest ticket in town. And this has been a tough ticket to get in town. Nancy Pelosi, where are you, Nance? Nancy. <laughs> Greatest speaker in our history, and this is her home court right here. <laughs> Folks, so wonderful to be here. Paul, good to see you, Paul. Where is everybody? Oh, yeah. So several other members of the California delegation here are also here, along with several city and state leaders. But as Kamala said, we're... Kamala. As Kamala said, I mean, uh, it's uh, Kamala, Kamala, Kamala. Ooh, I mean, who cares? Social climber, sleeping to the top, Kamala embarrassed. That's that's who she is and what they are. Okay. And um, Biden smirks and laughs at reporters while again refusing to ask her questions on classified files. As shocking report reveals Department of Justice made deal to keep FBI agents away from the search. No kidding. Look, here's the deal. Whenever you're running an operation like this, or or you just have lower levels of local law enforcement, or even within the agency and the institution, poking their nose where it don't belong and seeing things that are really incriminating. You want to manage the situation. You need to manage the situation because God forbid it goes further than what you want it to. Now, I mean, Biden, again, hey, he just knows he's in trouble not to talk about classified, whatever. I, I, I see this as a total up. Now, that's not to say that Biden didn't uh, have these documents well before he was the president of the United States, which he shouldn't have had them. That's not to say that there couldn't be something in there of some significance, but this is clearly an operation to take him out, to ease him out, bring Miss Embarrass up, and more than likely, I mean, they like that Newsom. They they, they like Newsom, VP maybe. May, maybe I'm being crazy on that one. I hear the tuck, Tuckins say uh, make way for Michelle Obama. I don't know. We're in a post-truth world. We're in a world where this administration has changed the term recession. We're far, we, we're far past that. And even the Davos crew is, is talking about 
high inflationary rates, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I'm going to play the uh, ridiculous clip here, okay, of, again, just totally and completely gaslighting us on inflation. Next week's a very big week for the economy. So I read the CEA blog. Is the White House trying to change the common definition of a recession? Because next Thursday, the GDP numbers coming out are going to show that we've been in a recession. So let me say this, you know, the strength of our labor market, along with the other economic uh, factors, is what what we generally see in a recession or even a pre a pre what is not what we generally see in a recession or even a pre-recession because we're seeing the strength of the economy and the labor market. So that's really important uh, to note there, there because those are uh, key elements as we talk about that, as folks keep asking us about that. So Americans across the country are back to work uh, at a historic level. 21 states, the most in history, have unemployed rates, unemployment rates at or below 3%. Uh, that is an important number to note. 14 states uh, are now at their lowest unemployment rates since this series began in 1976. And last month, the unemployment rate was a new low in eight states. So again, the strength of our labor market, along with the economic indicators, is not what we generally see uh, as we talk about a recession or even pre-recession. The job for the three months trend, the growth of job growth in the U.S. is, is shrinking, is decreasing, and 7.5 million people, a growing number, are, are multi-jobs, meaning they have to work more than one job to afford a living. So is jobs really a good indicator? There? Oh, look, here's what I would say. We've always talked about the strength of our economy. We've always start, talked about how historic it's been, and we've always talked about the transitioning, right? The transitioning to more stable uh, and steady growth. And so to your point about uh, the job growth there, this is what we have been kind of stating for the past uh, several months. Look, you know, the economy created 1.1 million jobs in the second quarter. Uh, and so, and around 375 jobs per month. Those are historic numbers. Uh, those are, if you think about the the 1.1 million jobs, we are back to where we were uh, at pre-pandemic levels. So that is what we see as strength of the economy. Again, we're going to transition uh, into a more stable uh, and steady growth, and uh, and so we're going to continue the work that the president has set out to do uh, to make sure that we continue to deliver for the American people when it comes to the economy. All right, folks. So <laughs> Joe doesn't run anything. He doesn't have any ideas for the American economy. The transition is real, but it's even it's beyond just the wealth transfer for of the uh, COVID-1984 nightmare. <clears throat> it is to transform, okay, your entire lifestyle into one of complete and total subservience, all right? Not just in a track, trace, database, internet of things run society with a social credit score, but one in which they get under your skin in the internet of bodies as well and take it to the next level of not just the social credit score, which uh, they will impose, but the extra level of your carbon allotment the carbon credit system see they'll put layers of it on there you know as part of your social credit score in the beginning but ultimately they will use your biology against you all right as they move you to where the metaverse the metaverse the metaverse okay and that's why uh right now 
I want to transition into some of the Davos stories. I want to make, I want to let everybody know and remember lots of prostitutes over in Davos. Again, we're important. We own people. We buy things. People are objects to us. And look, I'm not I'm not going to get into the sex worker debate and the legalized prostitution debate, et cetera, et cetera. But you have to understand, like when you have a certain wealth or your, I mean, you, you look at the Hollywood culture and people often talk about celebrities collecting people. They collect the, oh, this is my guy for this. And this is my guy for that. And it's, it's not really about the relationship with the other human being. It's what can I get from this person? Right? How can they help me? How, how is this transactionally beneficial? And in the case of prostitutes, they, there can be a lot of transactional benefits for um, the predator class and their minions, right? Like I said, a lot of journalists there, the pay-to-play journalists, the establishment journalists, the, the great narrative journalists, but maybe you want a certain point to really be hammered home or, or you want a series to be written up about a certain initiative or topic or agenda. Boy, you know, getting prostitutes for that person might be a way to do that, might be the transactional thing to do, just pointing it out. So again, while they sit there on their high horse and constantly virtue signal and tell us how they're going to save the world, sure are a lot of prostitutes gathering there. Davos organizers say Elon Musk was never invited to annual meeting of the global elite after the Tesla chief claimed he turned uh, them down because it sounded boring as F. All right. Musk took to Twitter on December 22nd to outline his reason for declining an invite to the forum, which uh, sees business executives, global leaders, and cultural leaders descending on the Swiss mountain resort. So, uh, and look at the, the young, hip Musk picture they got there with his fake hair plugs. Listen, my hair is not the best right now. A little fluffy. Oh, natural. A little gray on the sides. I'm an old man. 43. But there he is. He's hip young Elon. Yeah, hip. And he's fighting Davos. I'm sorry. He, whether they invited him or not, the Klaus Nutschwab agenda and the Elon Muskernuts agenda are the same damn agenda. The same damn agenda of sustainability, the same damn agenda of automation, the same damn agenda of human brain interfaces and transhumanism, the same damn agenda of AI, the same damn agenda of carbon as a economic mechanism, right? And sustainability via your $15,000 Tesla pod box. Okay, same damage. But he's the hero. We never invited Elon. They invited me. We never invited Elon. They invited me. 
I mean, come on. Give me a break here, guys. We're, we're grown-ups. And because we're grown-ups, and there's not a whole lot out there. Again, there's three things I've seen. We got the rock show. Yeah, we're rocking. Telling you right now that you're bad. And, and of course, you know, they got the diverse, like, hip, African, uh, kind of like folky slash soul band telling you how bad you are. And then the Klaus Nutschwab address. Since I haven't watched this whole thing, and I only watched like the first 20 minutes, and it was just so heavy on Ukraine, Ukraine, democracy, 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 I'm not going to bore you with a watch along. But what is important, okay, and what does need to be highlighted is something that we read start to finish yesterday. And instead of reading this start to finish, what I have is I have clipped up um, Shaping a Shared Future, Making the Metaverse. Okay. And that was one of two, one of two separate Davos forums on building this global collaboration village. And, and I want to reiterate it. The World Economic Forum has partnered with these people. So when we, we talk about this stuff, it's openly fascistic, but it's a fascism with a smile for a better tomorrow, right? Right? That we are cordial. I cordially invite you. The positive outlook of the human spirit. Meanwhile, this is a guy <laughs> that's telling you we're on the, the multi-crisis. It's an unprecedented time in history. The transition is going to hurt. We have to prepare, prepare for an angrier world. The human spirit. And then... He's trying to get you into a metaverse under global governance laws in not only like the ultimate track, trace, and database, but further, you know, taking you away from human interaction and taking the next step from this little bad boy. Okay. Not it's not just scrolly scroll scroll on your Instagrammy and your Snapchattles. It's not just Facebook's shorts and stories or whatever the hell it is. I don't even have Facebook on my phone. I mean, you know, uh, if anything is to be scrolled on my phone, it is the Twitter feed. And I have a News 360 app I use quite a bit. Okay. I, I think, actually, that that's one of the few apps that doesn't get a lot of play. It's been around, geez, I've been using that for over a decade. That's a pretty good app, at least for an aggregator of information. Always liked. Um, always enjoyed that app. So, you know, I'm focusing on this because not only is he doing an op-ed, but they, they tell you from theory to practice, you know, metaverse governance, and that's global government. I mean, they tell you it's global governments, governance right here. I know it's, it's in little, 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 uh, thing, but that's it. That's what it says. Global governance, leadership, justice, and law. Justice and law, bum, 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 values. I mean, <laughs> agile governance. And that's the setting the rules for the metaverse. They love their global gov governance. Working in the metaverse, right? They want, again, they want you wired in, hooked in. You know, 
COVID-19 has already made many people a lot more comfortable with the concept of virtual meetings and interaction with colleagues than they have ever been before. People were doing virtual meetings on the regular long before COVID. And it was mouthpieces from within this institution that economically devastated not only this country, but the world. And then they're going to lecture us on the third world, which really got the brunt of it. And they're going to lecture us, okay, on our carbon allotment and how we're bad. No, no. So the first thing I want to do is I want to show the uh, the intro to uh, the future of making uh, the metaverse, shaping in, uh, a shared future, making the metaverse, and, and it's nice little lovely uh, hip symbolism. So so let's let's get to it. Let's start her up. Uh, this is this is what they led with, and I believe this was last year's Davos. And those are all the great thought leaders and global leaders, right? The guy from the Black Eyed Peas. And that's also part of their like hip agenda to make it younger, right? The Davos Daily, we've played those videos before, et cetera, et cetera. And, and you got to love it. You're a star. You're a star and we're open to debate. You can say what you want. They don't want a real debate. Again, garbage in, garbage out. Who programs the AI? Okay. Who are the moderators? Who are the censors? And that's one of the big problems with Facebook. And that's one of the big problems with Instagram. And that's one of the big problems still with Twitter, right, Mr. Musk? Still got your FBI, your CIA, and your NSA former employees at high levels within that within that uh, operation. Weird. Weird. Oh, open minds. Yes, they're so open. Windmills, Bitcoin, NFTs, and pyramids. We are open to all. We're open to share, connect, exchange, debate. Oh, yeah, they care so much. And it's like you got like the weird smile kind of thing on there. It's an open forum for who? For for me? Is it really? It doesn't feel like it is an open uh, forum. So again, socializing, mobility, and collaboration. Oh, the metaverse. Yes, you can do so much, but you can shop there too. That's a big deal inside the metaverse. The rise of a metaverse economy will, uh, with completely new enterprises and work roles is emerging. Got to love that nice, huge eyeball. Hmm? I love big eyeballs, don't you? course is going to try they're trying to transform our lives you can see they're trying to transform our lives so uh this was a really interesting forum i've got a lot cut out and labeled i haven't done uh, a watch of a lot of these in a while 
But um, let's talk about language and extremism and extremists, okay? Because that's something that's brought up immediately. Just like I said, garbage in, garbage out. They're telling you they want narrative management and control. Yes, Bastia Shiro, I'm a member of parliament from Switzerland. Very quick question, also important for democracy. What we see in social platforms is that extreme people tend to stick together and, and stay together all the time. Now, if Metaverse is super attractive, people spend the whole time. And by the way, this guy right here who's asking this question, remember he said he's a member of parliament. We played a clip of him yesterday. This guy, and everybody's up in the mask slash years. This is the guy that was selling you on the 15 minute cities. All right. So now he's like, how can we protect from extremism? How can we herd you into 15 minute cities? How can we make it the easier choice that you don't want to use a car? In metaverse, isn't there the risk that they don't meet real other opinions and this extreme divide no, or, or extreme groups and the divide of the society is reinforced or, or what can we do to avoid the this, issue you know? of polarization who wants to take it I'll take it first i think there's two ways that we there's two ways that we avoid that the first way is that our virtual spaces like the real world need to have in between spaces where we can meet in between groups we cannot it's very difficult to become extremist when you are in a room containing a number of people who have different viewpoints um and so virtual worlds can bring people lots of people together in one shared space and by doing that, they can reduce the risk of uh, extremist behavior. The second one, which we can argue on, is I think that um, some of the business models, like advertisement, unfortunately have at least cracks that are slipped through where we are amplifying these behaviors through suggesting essentially worse and worse forms of, or pu pushing people farther and farther into polarization. So no ads and letting people share a single space rather than just be in a small room. So let's just stop that right there. That guy is one of the creators of Second Life. And he's actually one of the more reasonable guys on the panel. Now, first of all, they're never going to take ads out of the picture other than if they can have access to your biology at this point. And even then, they probably aren't going to take ads out of the picture. That's one. Two, um, the idea that Extremism is amplified through algorithms via advertising is a misnomer and totally and completely false, and I don't buy into it. Now, have there been people in the past that have exploited uh, news stories and created completely false ones and clickbait titles for videos and a hundred percent, a hundred percent? You know, I I hated some of these websites that were around i would say in the 2010s is really where they took off and it, we, people were sending me all sorts of fake news and it was really fake and i still see some of it today you know some of them are like fake mel gibson quotes there's a fake quote that still circulates about nicole kidman talking to stanley kubrick etc so so much as you know everybody is killed by the illuminati and they'll fit some you know a few real things in there and then just totally and completely um make up a quote that doesn't exist and yeah there were those people but in large part the real fear is 
that if you do have a, a meritocracy on information and you're not allowed narrative control, you notice how the question was framed and this guy kind of shot it down. People often can be persuaded with reality. They can switch um, their perception of what's going on and then in turn, what? Change the conversation completely. And they don't want that. They don't, they don't want what that guy just talked about, period. All right? And uh, the, the next thing we're going to play is a clip uh, about carbon and uh, masks. Okay? Just want to throw that out there. That we could have a Davos, a World Economic Forum that is completely in the metaverse and that if everybody's just sitting on their couch all day long, all the time, how that changes just the personal dynamics that people ultimately have. There's going to be trade-offs. I mean, I can imagine a, a lot more people being here that uh, didn't need to, you know, burn a bunch of carbon flying planes and then expose ourselves without masks. I would kind of prefer that experience in some ways. <laughs> I would kind of. <laughs> that guy, um, I think that's Chris Cox. That's the Facebook guy. That's the guy who continually lied to everybody during multiple hearings on the Hill about censorship and Facebook, telling you how, how much he'd rather prefer that no one used carbon to fly here and expose themselves, right, via the mass. The metaverse is the answer. Th this guy is one of the worst. Totally one of the worst. You know, he he laughs at you at one point. First of all, he starts with a huge virtue signal because this took place, I believe, right after Uvalde. In fact, let's let's bring up his his little virtue signal. This is this guy is a weasel. He's he's the guy that wants to exploit anything on behalf of an agenda that will elevate him socially and elevate his power. That's the type of guy Mr. Mr. Smirkles is here. Only about 60 seconds, maybe 120 seconds, uh, getting a sense from all of you about what the metaverse is. And to the extent you can add how you think it's going to impact our society, I would love to do that. And I'm gonna start, if I could, with Chris Cox um, on this issue. Chris. Thanks, Andrew. I wanted to start just with a message of support and condolences to the victims of the shooting in Texas, uh, to their families, to the affected community, and to the people of Texas. I know a lot of us are sending our hearts and condolences to them, so I wanted to start with that message. Wear a mask. Don't get on a plane unless you're me. And guns are bad. And, and, and this guy, I'm telling you right now, didn't give one flying rat's ass about what happened there, period. He's a huge phony. He's a huge phony. All right. And uh, the, the next clip that I want people to understand is you're, you're not going to own your own info. That's it. And, you know, most people are, in fact, uh, ignorant to how much info they're giving up constantly. You, you have to work it. You know, you have to. If you don't want this little bad boy to be a total and complete spy, you got to put a lineage OS on there. 
you got to put a graphene OS on there. Most people don't even know what that is. And even then, is it really working all the time? I don't know. Is it impenetrable? Probably not. Anything that's hooked up into these systems, um, you're giving up a lot. And people are largely ignorant to that. So there is this thing. When you go to university, you have this orientation class. You get oriented into what is expected uh, from your university and you know, what you should do. You get that at work. You get that in life in general. You don't get that when you use the internet. So most people are ignorant to what the trade-off is. And that's why we have these problems of, I did not know that I'm giving this much information and this is how it's going to be used against me to uh, monetize, right? There needs to be a way for us to orient people on what it means first to go to the digital world, not even the metaverse, what it means to use the internet. And this should be something that is in basic education in every single school in the world. Never happen. Never happen. I believe that's the UAE representative. And, and it's just like the Second Life guy. You know, he, he's offering a, a viable, and not a solution, but at least, uh, at least a pathway to an educated populace that might take a step back. And because they might take a step back, it's not part of the great narrative. Uh, it won't happen, period. Because you need to understand that, okay, you can match your cookies. You can remove certain things that you don't get targeted. There are ways for you to actually pay and get that service if there is, if that becomes a business model. And then it becomes the person's choice. If the person says, I actually like it the way that it is right now, I go for it for free, and they can monetize everything from me, then it's a personal choice. Today, people do not have the right for information. They do not understand what is happening and how they're playing a role. They don't have, in many countries, maybe in Europe they do, but and probably in the UAE, the right of access, to access their data and to understand what is being collected and the right to be forgotten, these rights uh, in that way. This needs to happen today for the digital world first and then get implemented into the metaverse. Right. Only about 60 seconds, maybe 120 seconds, uh, getting a sense from all of you about what the metaverse is. Oh, sorry, that skipped back through uh, to another one right there. Sorry about that, guys. But again, you aren't going to own your own info. I, I can promise you that. That's not a reality. Is there a way to do it yeah. where the user owns their own data? I mean, one of the sort of benefits of Web3, uh, some of the blockchain things that we've talked about that may exist in terms of layering on top of this, there's this idea that maybe you could own your own data and even maybe sell it to um, maybe a meta or to other. I mean, how do yeah. you see that? So did you see, did, did you see like his little, uh, like look at his face. This guy, this guy's like the worst guy on the panel. Not a fan of Chris Cox. Ready? You know, and even maybe sell it to um, maybe a meta or. <laughs> I mean, he little. He, I mean, he can't help himself. He's like, yeah, yeah, we're. They're gonna be able to sell it. You're gonna be able to own your. <laughs> no. To other. I mean, how do uh, you see that? So first, the user should control their data. Um, so at any, any sort of combination of events, the user should have the ability to delete, to understand, and to have controls over how their data is used. The user should understand that having data aggregated means they can have a much more relevant service. I mean, the exchange of you can have ads that are relevant to you or ones that are, are generally irrelevant to you is an exchange that comes along with basically agreeing to have data collected in a privacy safe um, and aggregated way. Bullshit. Privacy safe and aggregated way. Bullshit. 
What he's telling you is, essentially, and we'll do this live, brought this up with Clay Clark. If you are a premium member or you uh, listened to the broadcast, Alfonso ACR Software. Okay, there it is, Alfonso ACR Software. Smart TV Alfonso Software, but it was for all sorts of apps, just all sorts of apps. Hundreds of smartphone apps are monitoring users through Alfonso. Like, they bragged about it. And and this has been going on for a long, long, long time. This isn't new at all. None of this is new. Okay? This company might be listening to everything you watch. What the hell is Alfonso, and why is it eavesdropping on my child? And it's crazy to me, like, I'm going to videos, and I I really just love their own website. I mean, I could play it again. If you go to DuckDuckGo uh, and you type in the same thing, Alfonso, this should show everybody how banned I am on Google. It's ridiculous. ACR uh, software. Okay. So there it is, Alfonso, and there's their home. And if we go, we got safe search off, go to videos, no videos all of a sudden. Really? What if I take off software? We're doing it live. Here we go. This is what I want. Although I, uh, I did one on myself. Is it still up? Yes, they have their own. <laughs> Here we go. This should be good. How, do, how does it collect TV data? What we do is we have... All those uh, we have servers sitting in our server rooms, which are effectively have pipes coming from imagine Comcast or Dish Network pipes for all 200 plus channels and even local channels, and we are listening to those signals, and we take signatures of the content that's playing. What's happening is we we do video. Uh, recognition, AI, and machine learning, and OCR technology to recognize the text on the screen, what that content is about. If we see a logo for a particular brand, we recognize all that to understand, all right, this is an ad for Mercedes, right? When we see a logo of Mercedes at the beginning and at the end of the ad, we recognize this is an offer, uh, this is an ad for Mercedes which is doing a promotion since we see a 2% APR offer at the end. So that's that's what's happening on the server side. So we do what we call video ACR to understand all the metadata about the pieces of content for shows as well as for commercials. And we index that and we take a fingerprint and keep it in a server. So it's it's all that's playing on live TV as well as historically all content of TV is indexed on our servers. The next step, which is the more interesting one, which is where I think your question was going, is we now have our technology, our ACR technology installed on smart devices of consumer smart devices. The consumer smart device is now taking a fingerprint or a signature of the piece of content that's being watched, and it's sending that to our server where the match is happening. And we now recognize, aha, the consumer just watched that Mercedes ad. So that's how we are collecting data, and we're doing that at scale and in real time. 
doing that in scale and at real time, and it goes even farther beyond that. Again, look up audio content recognition. Okay, look up video content recognition. They access this bad boy. They access the speakers. Absolutely, the microphones. What we do is from all those various channels that you just gave the list, which is not just digital, TV, OTT content, we can now understand the reach that a brand had across all those channels, right? So that the brand has a very holistic view of, all right, we cover these set of audience at this reach and what's the frequency that they were able to reach that audience across all those channels and then provide the performance side of it as well, which is how did it work, right? And what worked, which combinations of channels worked, which channel, which combinations of channels did not work. And individualizing that. Man, I, ha I had even more than that come up when I was doing ACR and uh, Alfonso. I wonder if I type in Alfonso Burmis, my piece will come up. Nope. Nope, nope, nope. Man, I got it last time. But whatever. You know, Alfonso Burmis. Hey, how you doing? Uh, we are going to be going to premium in about uh, four minutes, guys. We're going to continue with uh, shaping a shared uh, future, making the metaverse the Davos haves and have nots, uh, the dystopian terms that they are uh, using, and so much more. Uh, terrorist content, you know, that's what they're talking about. Uh, they also did in 2020 what the When Humans Become Cyborgs panel. In fact, you know, if, if this guy bothers you, which which he should, the When Humans uh, Become Cyborgs, that should bother you f further. I mean, this is the guy right here. Yeah, Chris Cox, yuck. Right, so but we all, and I'm here in Europe with all of you now, and we all just click on the accept, accept, accept the cookie. Yeah. And, and and even though we well, now we have more, we now <laughs> see. Look, he goes. Well, we don't all do that, and that triggers his laughter. He knows you're being spied on. He knows you're clicking yes to everything. But more control. We <laughs> look at him giggle. We don't all do. <laughs> I mean, you should own your data. You should know when your data is being used. There should be an aggregated privacy environment. Well, we don't all click on that. <laughs> so but we all, and I'm here in Europe with all of you now, and we all just click on the accept, accept, accept the cookie. Yeah. And, and and even though we well, now we have more, we now have more control. <laughs> we ostensibly have more control, but in some ways we have less control because it's, it's very too complicated. It's too complicated to actually control. So on purpose, on purpose, it's too complicated on purpose. So. When we go to the other side, actually, why wait to go to the other side? We're going to start the when humans become cyborg session. You know, I, I always want to be a cyborg. I'm waiting for the day <laughs> to become one. But let's see. Like today, we like. <laughs> I can't. She can't wait. Metaverse, cyborgs, transhumanism, central bank, digital currencies, blockchain technology and more okay folks i am just uh so happy uh that you guys have come out here and uh, you have supported me redvoicemedia.com redvoicemedia.com slash jason slash 
uncensored. Um, that's how you can continue to support me. Now, if you don't want to pay, that's fine. Guys, please go over to the Podbean. Look for the Info Warrior. You can listen to the rest of the broadcast for free. Today, we'll also release a second hour from two weeks ago. Um, we've got exclusives over on Rockfin as well. So Rockfin viewers, you're getting the make, making sense of the madness stuff where nobody else, I'm not posting that anywhere else. I think there's some really great interviews. Um, Sasha Latipova, great stuff. Uh, so this is where I'm going to signal to the producer as we leave these uh, platforms one at a time. We're going to come back on the other side with more Davos and DARPA's man in Wuhan. Okay, an unlimited uh, hangout, amazing piece. So, Rockfin, I love you. We'll see you on the flip. Uh, YouTube, Ariva Durchi. Goodbye, 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 Twitter. And Rumble on Rumble. With that being said, I usually just wait a minute until I get a text message. Okay, and we still haven't gotten that right there. So let's see right here. Let's end some stream action over on Rumble on the other side. Rumble's a little bit complex. I did just watch, uh, oh, I got a tip skin hutch over there. Let's read that on the other side. Is there any place to buy your documentaries on DVD? I wish there were. Also can't find the Dennis Bushnell speech with the lady in front of the fire. I noticed uh, the 2018, the fire one, he says nanoparticles are dangerous at the end says NAD plus reverses aging. I think he was hinting towards a document. Uh, I'm on the NAD plus because of finding it out from, from Bushnell. You know, I, I, I listen to these guys uh, when they start talking about technology and I do my own research and I'm on uh, true Niagen. I also do a little bit of uh, resveratrol as well. I believe that is my good to go. So with, with that being said, uh, the good to go, let's see where we're at. Let's, let's uh, kick it back off with the haves and the have-nots at shaping a shared future, a making of the metaverse. But I was talking to a fellow last night uh, who made a very compelling uh, argument to me. I don't think I personally agreed with it, but I was fascinated by it. Uh, and he said, look, there's going to be people... Um, of means who are going to travel. And then there's going to be people maybe who are lesser means who might actually be able to use an, an Oculus or uh, a Magic Leap or some other kind of device uh, to travel to the same place, but from their own, their own couch. But in many ways, it's actually going to create even more distance between those, the, the, <coughs> the, the, those two people that, that psychologically, and I think that we've experienced this through social media, in many ways, it's brought people closer in certain ways, but actually created this remarkable divide because there's, it's even more visible, actually, the divide in certain ways. An example of a grave challenge and danger that we now face is precisely this, that as we begin to travel again, we will separate into two classes, basically. Those with the means to travel and meet face to face, and those who are left behind on Zoom. And, no, and, and, and in hybrid meetings, a particular concern I have, those meetings we have with our teams where Two or more people are in the room together and thus enjoy real eye contact and real intimacy. Yes. And everybody else is on the Zoom call. Yeah. Think, think how bad that's going to be. We don't know it yet because in COVID, we were all on Zoom. Right? The CEO was on Zoom. Everybody was on Zoom. Now we're about to have half the people on Zoom. So, so once again, the haves and the have-nots, and that's a real thing. 
And that that's one of the things they, they want to move you into the metaverse. They very, very much want to be mobile. They want to restrict you and say, no, you can do this online while they travel via private means. Their carbon allotment is essentially infinite. And yours is no, 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 no. You know, th this is exactly what's being set up, period. Well, first of all, I have a bit of a reaction to the word metaverse, uh, just having read Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson. It's a, that's a bit of a dystopian view that he had. Um, but I think at its highest level, I would think of it as the seamless merging of our digital and physical worlds. So once again, you know, you're, you're talking about this fourth industrial revolution. And uh, what I did like about her is she sometimes acknowledged the dystopian nature of this whole thing, including the dystopian nature of the term metaverse itself. Okay. Uh, so this next clip is on uh, terrorist content. Okay. And, and a, a after, after the terrorist content, they're going to talk about what? a singular rule set, all of it United Nations driven. All this is UN global governance driven. You, think that's, you, you do business all over the world, Chris. Yes, that's right. Obviously, yeah. and you're dealing with different laws and different <clears throat> regulations in many different places. Is this doable? And is, is the UN going to be the, uh, the arbiter of how this is gonna, in a, uh, you know, we call that the splinter net and, and, and deglobalization, is, is there a governing body that can actually make this work? There certainly are. If you look at um, if you look at child exploitation, if you look at terrorism, there are international organizations. Some of them are associated with the UN, some aren't. You want international standards, um, especially for things that are across, especially cross-border, like terrorist content. Maybe a more controversial statement, which is, you know, Second Life's always sort of thought of itself as a kind of a, a new country. And it was something that I often said when we were getting started. And, I, I do think that while local while local community uh, regulation is ultimately what we must build uh, in the metaverse, if we have any hope of having a billion people uh, regulate themselves as they do in the real world, I think that in the same way that the UN emerged, I bet you that as these shared systems become more useful, say just for meetings, we will uh, we will collapse to a more singular set of rules, say around intellectual property or privacy. We we can't do anything else. I mean, I think um, the efficiency will we drive. We can't. It do anything else efficiency will drive us into a united nations style uh system okay and let let them elaborate more on the economy and government system of that united nations driven system world economic forum united nations globalism the metaverse okay ask you a governance question please uh you know the internet is somewhat borderless but um is defined by regulations in very in, in in every country it gets more complicated i think in the metaverse in that really if it works the way it's supposed to work it should be a borderless world and i could be in new york and you could be the uae and uh, philip could be in hong kong and um and the question is whose rules are supposed to apply. You know, Chris mentioned this this tragic shooting that just happened yesterday, and I was thinking actually of a fascinating uh, and I think actually very scary situation, which was 
two weeks ago up in Buffalo, New York, there was a shooting uh, that was taken uh, live on Twitter, I'm sorry, on Twitch, um, and then taken down. And a lot of the other social media companies took it down uh, around the country in the United States. Yet there's a law in Texas, interestingly, uh, that's supposed to be about uh, free speech and censorship that says you actually have to leave it up. You'd actually have to leave up the video of the shooting. No, no, let's just stop. That's not true. That's not true that you have to leave up snuff films or films of violence. If you have content that is clearly unlawful, okay, not unlawful to watch or own, but of crimes taking place, and those crimes, in fact, are violent, which that one was, you, of course, as any type of private business, have it at your discretion to take it down. Period. They, they like this is a false argument. This is a misnomer, and and that they often do this because they're driving a narrative, which is extraordinary. And so, I imagine there's going to be different rules in different countries in different states, and how you, as somebody who's a a a, a government actor, thinks about that in this new world. Absolutely. So there are different types of risks that we need to pay attention to. There are risks that need to be enforced by government, let's say, financial transactions that happen in the real world for goods that you buy in the metaverse. Like you mentioned, the Air Jordans or the the monkey yacht that you talked about. Or board the board ape. Board I call ape. them monkeys, but that, that's an insult to the board, board apes. <laughs> so, so if you actually pay money for that and you don't get it in the metaverse, someone needs to enforce that action, right? So that's one type of issue that governments need to talk about and and in some way, shape, or form, come to an agreement of how that's going to be enforced. Then there is the more extreme aspect, which is terrorism, really terrorizing people on the metaverse. Because the difference is, if I send you a text on WhatsApp, it's text, right? It might terrorize you, but to a certain degree, it will not create the memories that you uh, will have PTSD from it. But if I come into the metaverse, and it's a realistic world that we're talking about maybe in the future, and I actually murder you, and you see it, it actually takes you to a certain extreme where you need to enforce it aggressively across the world because everyone agrees that certain things are unacceptable. There needs to be a conversation today at the level of the United Nations or the ITU or these uh, non-governmental bodies. So again, they got to regulate that type of content. And look, here's the deal. You can already get murdered in the metaverse, right? or in VR, or whatever, in certain games. It certainly is not lifelike, and you, you don't feel it. But I would liken it to this. In some of the demos, you know, they'll put you out on the ledge of a building or something like that. It seems really real. It seems very, very real. You're like, whoa. And, and there's numerous videos out there of people who are, you know, walking across a ledge or something, and someone comes up to them and pushes them and they freak out. If, you, if you've ever put the headset on, you can see where it's immersive. Now, as far as like actually immersive to the point where you're going to feel the haptic feedback of somebody stabbing you or cutting your throat or, you know, shooting you, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, that might be a thing, but I certainly don't want the United Nations, the World Economic Forum, being the ones that regulate what that means, okay? And that that's really where this, this whole subject 
is is going to be taboo in some ways, right? Because one of the first things that obviously was commercialized via VR and even the metaverse now was pornography because it always is just like you see um, the uh, sex workers exploding in Davos, et cetera. That's the big exploitation. And it's often talked about and you know, the, the sex doll industry and the robotic dolls and basically sex robots have been talked forever. So, so you're going to have that aspect being exploited and they're going to want to make that more and more real. And the video game industry is, is the next one in there, period. You know, whether they want to talk about meetings or, or whatever they're going to try to drive you into, really, it's it's entertainment that drives people. Without haptic suits, it's going to be very hard to get there. But but a lot of that could be accelerated and completely and totally changed if, in fact, you're talking human brain interfaces that are essentially interacting with your nervous system. So who knows if we're going to get to that point or see that point. Um, I, I guess if these people have their way, uh, we will. So the uh, the next couple clips I want to play here is, again, them telling you about all these safety rules, all these safety rules and all these these governance rules. OK, standards and safety. It's oh, it, I mean, I have all these clips. We're probably looking at about two minutes worth of clips coming up right now. Where a certain standards is set. But there are so many issues that the metaverse uh, raises, opportunities it creates, uh, and we're going to dig into all of them this afternoon together. And we have an amazing group of people here to talk about these issues of governance, um, of potential regulation, what those opportunities really look like potentially even issues around inequality, and then we'll get into the innovation and tech side of it. So if I look at this from a government perspective, the first thing that comes to mind is scale. So if you look at the Travis Scott example, the concert that he did in, I think it was Fortnite, 56 million people right. attended that. Yeah. It was a matter of scale. The biggest concert on earth is around a million people or a million and a few hundred thousand. You can definitely scale different goods and services to people across borders in a very seamless manner. That's the first thing. The second is, I think it's a new form of expression. Um, we used to imagine text on screen, we used to imagine graphics. Now we can imagine new worlds, we can imagine new ways of giving these services. We can imagine a new, uh, let's say, paradigm between the virtual and the physical, which is augmented reality. And I think we can create a bridge that we could never have imagined in the past. The industry as a, as a, as a coalition is spending a lot of time starting to talk about standards. What are the standards for an avatar? What are the standards for travel between one space and the next? What are the standards around privacy, uh, around encryption, around how things like report buttons will work? The report button is the key element to help somebody in an unsafe situation flag something about it. And how we manage those experiences as an industry are gonna be some of the most important questions on how we build something that's safe. Everything's about safety everything's about safety. Chris Cox wants to keep you safe. Say Facebook wants to keep you safe. We need rules for safety. Safety, safety, safety. Well, I certainly think from a technical perspective, we can do everything here. You know, I mean, between the, you know, the, the, 
various technology companies that are working on this now at such scale. We, we definitely can make anything we want technically happen. I think the question is, uh, and if, if you're asking, you know, can we have a form of interoperability, say an identity uh, and, and, and moderation that is a stable, uh, positive environment? I think that's certainly true. So it's intriguing to note that technology is kind of neutral, but right now we're, we're appropriately concerned with some of the negative impacts it's had. But I think the metaverse experience and the particular experience of bringing people together with the right shared rules, the right, like, the right basic, basic rules about how they can interact does have the potential of uh, bringing us all together worldwide in the way that we're doing it right here. Basic rules and standards. They're never going to want you to go outside of the na narrative. So those rules and standards will constantly change, constantly change. All right. I want to read this piece. Uh, this was sent to me uh, by Whitney Webb yesterday. DARPA's man in Wuhan. We talk a lot about the COVID-1984 nightmare. We talk a lot about DARPA and its partnership with Moderna via the strategic mRNA collaboration to fight pandemics, both biological in nature and uh, also biological warfare in nature. Michael Callahan's career began in USAID and in the bioweapons labs of the former Soviet Union, advancing the agenda of the global bioweapons and pharmaceutical cartels. He would take what he learned there to execute a massive expansion of DARPA's biodefense portfolio, and today finds himself squarely in the center of the origins of the coronavirus pandemic. Just lovely. And this is by Raul Diego, by the way. It's over at unlimitedhangout.com. That is uh, Whitney Webb's website. Again, Johnny Vedmore also publishes over there. Really great website. Dr. Michael Callahan was given a leave of absence from his senior executive role at United Therapeutics in the wake of the COVID-19 outbreak in Wuhan, China, uh, sent there to assist colleagues in handling mass infections of the novel coronavirus under his joint appointment at a Chinese sister hospital at the Massachusetts General Hospital, Harvard Medical School, where he has maintained a faculty appointment since 2005. And by the way, United Therapeutics is what? Owned by Martin Rothblatt. We often talk about that. Soon Callahan would be pouring through thousands of case studies emerging from the epicenter of the outbreak in Wuhan. Examples uh, examining patients in Singapore and briefing U.S. officials on the location of the next likely outbreak, according to Nat Geo. The doctor marveled at the magnificent uh, ineffectivity of the disease, which sits like a uh, little silent smart bomb in your community. That's in quotations. It's a little bit bigger. Not that. The doctor's strange fascination with viral infections and morbid, uh, morbid titillation might well be attributed to the fact that he has dedicated his life to studying these microscopic killers, triple boarded in internal medicine, infectious diseases, and tropical medicine. Callahan, nevertheless, also has a strong entrepreneurial streak that drove him to launch no less than 11 companies and develop eight patents. Callahan's nose for business came into play early on in the pandemic after studying data from over 6,000 patient records from Wuhan. 
Uh, he reportedly detected a pattern that could point to the possible treatments using a low cost and widely available ingredient of an over-the-counter histamine 2 receptor antagonist called uh, famatidine, more commonly known as the brand name Pepsid. Simultaneously in the U.S., it is claimed uh, an old colleague of Callahan's, Dr. Robert Malone, had, had been conducting a study with U.S. government-sponsored research teams. Specifically, Malone was working alongside U.S. defense threat reduction agencies, consultants to carry out supercomputer-based analysis to identify existing FDA-approved drugs that might be useful against the novel coronavirus responsible for COVID-19. Per their analysis, fomitidine turned out to be one of the most attractive combination of safety, cost, and pharmaceutical characteristics. Callahan, who by then had been recruited uh, to be a special advisor on, on COVID-19 to the Assistant Secretary of Preparedness and Response, Robert uh, Cadlick, was uh, presented the joint findings of the U.S. DTRA and Dr. Malone. Both Dr. Callahan and Malone claim to be unaware of each other's conclusions regarding the ant, uh, antacid. And despite agreeing to collaborate, each claims to have made the initial discovery. Malone offered a February post on LinkedIn as proof where he asserts that he was the first to take the drug to treat my own case upon discovering the, the proper dose. Callahan, meanwhile, never provided any evidence of his ostensible breakthrough, though he claims to have told Dr. Malone himself about the discovery before the Virginia-based physician began running the sequence through DTRA computers. Callahan, who by then had been recruited by uh, to be special advisor on COVID-19 to the Assistant Secretary of Preparedness, and response, Robert Cadlick, was presented the joint findings of the USDTRA. Oh, I'm sorry, I did, we did, did, is that a repeat or did I just read the same thing twice? No, that, that, that's it. Okay, so here we go. Quite a resume, Mr. Bond. In 1988, Michael Callahan started his first company called Rescue Medicine. A National Institute of Health uh, bio describes the company as a character, uh, a charter organization that provides emergency air medical evacuation and refugee medical care in austere developing regions. According to their website, Rescue Medicine supports federal government and U.S. cooperations operating in remote international environments, becoming a global leader in disaster medicine research. The experience made him a shoe-in as the health director of USAD in, New in Nigeria, a post he held for four years carrying out research on pathogen infections in Africa, uh, prospectively enrolling participants for cutaneous anthrax studies in Nigeria and monkeypox, as well as Ebola and Marburg virus in the Democratic Republic of the Congo and Angola. As was the case for several individuals with certain tight-knit group with infectious diseases and biological circles, uh, biological weapon circles, sorry, 9-11 and subsequent anthrax attacks changed the course of Callahan's career, spurring his meteoric rise in both the public and the private sectors. Robert Danzig, Clinton's Secretary of the Navy, credited Callahan with being extremely good at connecting the military environment with mainstream public health. Touted as Callahan's first high-level links to the military, Danzig 
would only uh, be one of many high-level people the doctor would add to his Rolodex over the next two decades. His time with USAID would overlap with the start of his faculty appointments at Massachusetts General Hospital. Appointments he maintains to this day and his participation in biological terrorism working groups at the National Academies of Sciences, the Department of Defense, and the Department of Homeland Security. Boy, he's got a lot of them good, huh? good ones, huh? A year later in 2002, Callahan would be tapped by the State Department's Director for the Bureau of International Security and Nonproliferation to serve as Clinical Director for co Cooperative Threat Reduction Programs. At six former Soviet, Soviet Union biological weapons facilities as part of the Bioindustry Initiative Program, where he was officially tasked with carrying out the stated goals of the mission, which entailed the reconfiguration of former biological weapons production facilities in the former Soviet Union and the acceleration of drug and vaccine production. More specifically, however, Callahan would be put in charge of gain-of-function programs for viral agents at these facilities. Gotta love that gain-of-function. Gotta love it. The CTR, better known as the Noon-Luger Act, uh, might be Nun-Luger Act, sorry about that, to secure and dismantle weapons of mass destruction in states of the former Soviet, Soviet Union and beyond, was co-authored and sponsored by Senator Sam Nunn, who was uh, none other ah, ha, ha, than the president in the bioterror attack simulation that uh, preceded the 2001 anthrax attacks by a matter of months, dark winter. An exercise covered by Whitney Webb and this author in the investigative series, Engineering Contagion. A few months prior to the dark winter exercise, Nunn had co-founded the Nuclear Threat Initiative with conservative reactionary media mogul Ted Turner. Serving as its CEO until 2017, the NTI would play a critical role in the repurposing of the former Soviet bioweapons labs into vaccine production facilities, allocating millions of dollars to this end. Fantastic. A full year before Callahan's BII appointment, the Sam Nunn Policy Forum received a uh, proposal from two Russian scientists working at the Vector Institute or State Research Center of Virology and Biotechnology in the Novobazuric district of Siberia. The former Soviet bioweapons R&D center had been selected to serve as a model for the makeover of other for former bioweapons facilities into open and fully transparent laboratories after the collapse of the Soviet Union, a process that had been discussed at length with the U.S. vector evaluation team that had visited the compound a few years earlier, all the way back in 1998. The Russian scientists aimed to create a nonprofit organization called International Center for the Study of Emerging and Reemerging Infectious Diseases. It was intended to perform research in areas related to diagnostics, vaccines, and therapeutics. The project was presented to the Sam Nunn Policy Forum in 2001. While ICERID itself 
fell through. Vector would nonetheless receive a $600,000 grant from Nunn and Turner's NTI soon thereafter. Callahan would follow shortly in low under the auspices, or I'm sorry, in tow under the auspices of the U.S. State Department program, leading clinical research teams at Vector and several other important Soviet bioweapons labs to aid in their transformation into profitable ventures. Callahan was also given access to the infamous Institute of Highly Pure Biopreparations where Soviet microbiologist Vladimir A. Pashenik had worked before defecting to England in 1989 and kickstarting the dreams of the international bioweapons mafia detailed in the Engineering Contagion series. Both IHPB and Vector were part of the five principal institutes of the BioPreparat, the broader Soviet bioweapons program. The State Research Center for Applied Microbiology, the Kiev Institute, the Research Center of Molecular Diagnostics and Therapy, and BERDSK, BERTSK, uh, round out the six labs where Callahan was formerly leading clinical research teams. Amazing. Uh, though in congressional testimony given together uh, with another high-profile uh, Russian defector, Callahan claimed to have worked at 14 separate facilities. 14 separate facilities. Huh. Throughout Callahan's travels in the former Soviet Union, Massachusetts General Hospital was sharing in research and scientific innovation taking place in the former Soviet labs as part of the Consortium of Massachusetts Medical Research Institutions in 2004. The number one research hospital in the U.S., Mass General, was taking part in the Bioindustry Initiative program, making use of the Russian technology their facility member, Michael Callahan, was in the process of discovering. We took a Russian delivery system, a rocket as it were, and put an American warhead on it, said Jeffrey A. Gelfland, a colleague of Callahan's and international director of MGH's center, integration of medicine and innovative technology, referring to a drug delivery system taken from the RCMDT, one of the former Soviet facilities, then under the clinical directorship of Callahan. The RCMDT is described as a small molecule research facility that traditionally focused on entities the body generates, such as interferon and cytokines to turn on or turn down the immune response system. Isn't that lo lovely? Turn it up now, turn it down now, turn it up now, turn it down now. Gotta love messing with you know natural immunity. The former Soviet Research Center obtained a grant from the National Institutes of Health via BII uh, for the collaborative project of a new approach to disease research. Another facility Callahan was working at, Vector, also received funding for a novel HIV vaccine and helped file patents on the Institute's approach to hepatitis C and influenza. The same institution obtained grants from BII for RNA-based antiviral research. What do you know? 
The task of transforming these former Soviet bioweapons labs into profitable ventures was hitting some cultural walls, according to the then director of the Center for Global Security Research at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory and chairman of the board of BII precursor ISTC, Ronald F. Lehman II. They have no experience with a market economy. He alleged and claimed that they had to work very hard to make the Russians understand that intellectual property was an economic good. Oh, it's an economic good. It's fantastic. I love economic goods. They're good times. Good times. Let's see. Ah. Uh... Soon enough, the Russian scientists would be ushered into a brokered meetings with Eli Lilly and Dow Chemical, among other large Western pharmaceutical companies, to commercialize their discoveries. Much of the groundwork for this has been laid by a sort of precursor of the BII, the International Science and Technology Center, a Moscow-based intergovernmental organization established in 1992 to serve as a clearinghouse for developing, approving, financing, and monitoring projects aimed at engaging weapons uh, scientists, technicians, and engineers from the former Soviet Union and other states that were once behind the Iron Curtain. Real spy games, folks. Real trade-offs on the scientists. Real post-operation paperclip type operations. Lehman conceded that any kind of economic, political, or social turmoil would complicate the process uh, or commercializing the scientific work being done in these Eastern Bloc labs. But in the meantime, Callahan, along with uh, BII and its partners, was doing his best to push as much science as possible from Russian lab benches into production. One of the main functions of the BII was scouting out sites and planning for business development at the time of Callahan's uh, sojourn through Russia. One of the projects that was resulted from this activity by the BII and its private NPO partner, the U.S. Civilian Research and Development Foundation, had to do with a little-known vaccine plant in the former Soviet state of Georgia. Not, not our Georgia, Georgia, Georgia on my mind. And, and that would make sense. Again, you got all these um, bio labs in the Ukraine as well. And then this piece, I think it's from 2020, well before the, the bioweapon uh, scandal, or the biolab scandal in the Ukraine. According to James Wolfram, a senior scientist with the CRDF, the Georgia facility was antiquated and housed dangerous pathogens. The ostensible goal of converting the vaccine plant into a feed mill turned into an agreement between the DOD and the government of the Republic of Georgia, officially titled Cooperation in the Field of Prevention of the Introduction of Pathogenesis and Experiences Related to Biological Weapons Developments. That same year, construction began on the Richard Luger Center for Public Health Research on, uh, I don't, won't even try that, Tbilisi? I guess I did try it, Georgia. The center was completed in 2011. In 2017, the U.S. Department of Defense awarded a $6.5 million contract to a company called EcoHealth Alliance. Oh, to carry out research on the risk of bat-borne 
zoonotic disease emergence in Western Asia. Uh, Asia. Journalist Diliana uh, Gaitiism, wow, uncovered the Pentagon Project, which focused on genetic studies on coronaviruses in 5,000 bats collected in Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Turkey, and Jordan. The journalist also detailed the multiple covert activities being carried out by the USG, such as American diplomats trafficking in blood pathogens for a secret military program, as well as an instance in which a breakout of hemorrhagic fever in the area immediately surrounding the center was traced back to experience, uh, experiments being uh, carried out by Pentagon's scientists on tropical mosquitoes and ticks. Not coincidentally, EcoHealth Alliance had previously received a $3.5 million grant from the NIH in 2014 to study coronaviruses in bats in Asia. This particular study was carried out in partnership with scientists at none other than the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Bing, 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 bing. Master of the dark sciences. After a few years bouncing from one Soviet, uh, I'm sorry, one former Soviet lab to another, Michael Callahan would return to the United States with a head full of new ideas and a brand new job at the Pentagon's Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, DARPA, 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 where he could put it all uh, to use as director of the agency's biodefense therapeutics portfolio. In the space of just seven years, from 2005 to 2012, Callahan would expand DARPA's biodefense portfolio from $61 million to $260 million per year and launch eight programs that would generate nine investigational new drugs and three new drug applications with products in market, including the injectable fungal treatment Ambiosum Gilead which has generated over $6 billion since approval. Two programs in particular developed by Callahan while at DARPA would later play a critical role in the future involvement in the broader story of SARS-CoV-2, a.k.a. COVID-19, and the vilification of China, uh, IP, and the advancement of a global vaccine regime. The Accelerated Manufacture of Pharmaceuticals, AMP, uh, program was created by Michael Callahan in 2006, barely a year after he first came on board as DARPA's portfolio manager. Its purpose was to find technologies that could radically accelerate the manufacturing of protein vaccines and protein-based therapeutics with the goal of revolutionary uh, revolutionizing uh, protein therapeutics and va vaccine manufacture through the private sector. The program's mandate dovetailed with concurrent efforts to fundamentally transform the U.S. government's approach to vaccine manufacture and medical countermeasures. Uh, Justice Callahan was uh, soliciting proposals and handling millions of DARPA's money, uh, handing millions of DARPA's money to private companies. The agency was entering into cooperative agreements with the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center to look into the challenges of this endeavor. The seminal 180-page report that resulted from the two-year deep dive, 2007-2009, into USG procurement and manufacturing methods for MCMs titled Ensuring Bio, um, 
Biologics Advancement Development and Manufacturing Capability for the United States Government, a summary of key findings and conclusions, was led by Tara O'Toole and Thomas Inglesby, two key individuals in the dark winter exercise and perennial participants in the course of the policy and legislative changes that have uh, led to the establishment of an entrenched biotech mafia in the halls of government. No kidding. The central question that this cooperative effort between DARPA and the UPMC wanted to answer was how to incentivize the private sector to manufacture products that only had one buyer, the U.S. government. To this end, the researchers probed different areas such as barriers to entry, cost analysis, and several types of manufacturing options. They included one case study to demonstrate what they believe would be the most effective strategy to follow. That case uh, study looked at a company headquarters in Rockville, Maryland called Novavax, which was recently received a $1.6 billion grant, largest so far, from Trump's Operation Warp Speed to manufacture a COVID-19 vaccine. Hmm. I remember Novavax back in the day uh, and Baxter. I want to look into that. The paper lauded the company's single-use bioreactors and bags equipment, bioprocessing facility for the development of their influenza virus like a particular vaccine and concluded that although not all biopharma companies would be willing to uh, transition to single-use facilities, it was nonetheless the government's best interest to patronize single-use manufacturing processes for MCMs as they would lower costs and cut down production time by two years. Several USG incentive programs were cited as successfully removing barriers to entry for private sector participants. Among these were the orphan productions program, tax cuts for big pharma subsidies, and significantly the pandemic, the pandemic, the pandemic, and all hazards preparedness act. Okay. And that was created by uh, Robert Cadlick and which established BARDA, BARDA, which is essentially the medical DARPA, clearing the unique governance barrier faced by global pharmaceutical firms. In 2005, uh, just as he was getting ready to decorate his new office at DARPA, Michael Callahan testified before Congress, together with Ken Albeck, former deputy director of the Soviet BioPreparate, who defected the U.S. and became the darling of the bioterror alarmists in and out of government. In his preparedness statement, Callahan concluded with a chilling statement that summarizes the general sentiment shared by many in his circle. Okay, you ready? The dark science of biological weapon design and manufacture parallels that of the health sciences and cross-mic discipline of modern technology. Potential advances in biological weapon lethality will in part be by, be the byproduct of peaceful scientific progress. So until the time when there are no more terrorists, the U.S. government and the American people will depend on the scientific leaders of their field to identify any potential dark side aspect to every achievement. Who are the terrorists, by the way? Callahan would receive DARPA's highest commendation, the DARPA Achievement Award for his success with the accelerated manufacture of pharmaceuticals program. But it would be another program of his creation that would prove prophetic. Prophecy was another program 
created by Callahan at DARPA. Isn't that lovely? It sought to transform the vaccine and drug development enterprise from observation and uh, reactive to predictive and preemptive. Through algorithmic programming techniques, in layman's terms, the program proposed viral mutations and outbreak could be predicted in advance to more rapidly counter the unknown disease with preemptive drug and vaccine development. Among the grantees of Callahan's program were at least two institutions where he himself held faculty positions, Harvard University, where he holds clinical appointment, received a $19.6 million contract for a joint project with Johns Hopkins University, uh, Applied Physics Laboratory, University of Pittsburgh, and many others. Another institution with close ties to Callahan, obtaining generous funding through DARPA Prophecy Program, was the King uh, Chilongo Memorial Hospital in Bangkok, Thailand, which houses the King Chilonga Corn Medical University, where Callahan is a visiting professor. This guy's everywhere. In 2009, Callahan's old employer, USAID, launched PREDICT, an early warning system of new and emerging diseases in 21 uh, countries. Thailand, known for being a hotbed of undiagnosed illnesses and viruses among medical experts, was among those uh, 21 nations and a doctor described as a giant in the field of virus discovery worldwide, was tapped by the CIA cutout to lead the PREDICT program in that country. Just the best. Dr. Super... Super porn shoe. I'm not even going to try it from the from that memorial hospital. Okay, had been conducting research on viruses and bats for years and is considered one of the world's leading experts on bat pathogens. We need more doctor uh, super porns of the world, exclaimed Callahan in 2016 interview with Vice. The doctor praised um, his university colleague, noting that shoe was at the very top of his list when it came uh, to whom he chose to work with on virologic expeditions. Indeed, Callahan and DARPA had identified uh, this person as an asset in 2004 when she discovered the NIPAH, the Nipah virus in bats, which can affect humans and pigs. Callahan and the doctor worked together on several studies, one of these funded by the USID PREDICT program. Diversity of a coronavirus in bats from Eastern Thailand was published in 2015 and carried out between 2008 and 2013, as well as a 2013 uh, study on encephalitis funded by DARPA and the Thai government. Are you starting to get that this isn't a leak? Are you starting to get this is a long-term biological program that took place in many countries? Are you getting it? Because we're we're coming to the end of the program, and and I, I, I may wrap up um, this tomorrow, but I, I would encourage everybody to just go to unlimited hangout, read the rest of this because, uh, you know, th- this is laying it down. There's still that much more to go. Still that much more to go, but guys, I think that's going to just about do it for me. We'll be back bright and early, bright and early tomorrow, uh, 8 a.m. Eastern to 10 a.m. Eastern Monday through Thursday. This is reality rants with Jason Burmis. I want to remind you, I'm a documentary filmmaker. Loose Change, Final Cut, Fabled Enemies, Invisible Empire, A New World Order Defined, and Shade the Motion Picture are all free of charge. I want you to watch them. I want you to share them. And I I want you to, to pick something 
something, some topic that's been exposed in these films and really try to do something about it. You know, because these these people at the top, they're giving you a smile and they're saying, yeah, it's a better world we're bringing it to you. You got to make your own better world. You got to be your own hero. And that's why it's not about left or right. It's always about right and wrong. I love you guys. And I will see you on the flip side.